How much power do you think dead people have over your life? If you think the answer is very little, ask yourself this question. How much influence on the world do you hope to have after you die? How do you think other people would answer this question? A lot of people, dead people, are still getting what they wanted. They're exerting their power long after they've died, and all of us are doing it for them. You're listening to Hi-Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb, a philosophy professor at Vassar College, producing the show out of Duke University. The show today, The Wishes of the Dead. It's about how much money we spend satisfying the desires of people who died a long time ago. These dead people aren't going to complain if we stop serving their interests. So why do we do it? Why do we keep doing it even when things are so different from 50 or 100 years ago, when these rich people were writing their wills? And why do we keep on doing it even when the wishes of the dead conflict with the needs and values of the living? In America, if you listen to public radio or watch public television, or follow colleges and medical research, you've probably heard a lot of the same names supporting the arts, humanities, and sciences. Carnegie, Mellon, Ford, Rockefeller. There are other names in the UK and Australia. These are all incredibly wealthy people from the 19th and 20th century still using their wealth to shape areas of modern life. But there's one name you don't hear in this context, even though it's a name Americans know and love. Like the others, he's still exerting his wealth and influence 75 years after his death. You don't hear about him because unlike the Fords and Carnegies, what he wanted was a lot more peculiar. Hershey, Hershey, Hershey. It's a fun one. Hershey, Hershey, Hershey. So Milton Hershey was the founder of the Hershey Chocolate Company, and his wife Catherine, they were not able to have children. And when Hershey's wife died, he was absolutely despondent. He gave pretty much all of his property, which at that time was valued at about $60 million, to a trust to create a school for the residence and accommodation of poor white male orphans. Uh, Milton Hershey was always of the opinion that girls seemed to be taken care of. They were more, more useful, they could work in the home, boys could be more of a handful to deal with, and it was harder for families to find a home for, for boys than it would be for girls if a family was, was broken up, if somebody had passed away. A small orphanage and school in Hershey, Pennsylvania, for white male orphans. That's where Hershey wanted to put his fortune. But his wishes were even more specific than that. He wanted it to be an agriculture and trade school, and he wanted the boys to be healthy, which means no disabilities, illnesses, behavioral or mental issues. Finally, he wanted the guardians of the boys to sign an indenture, which allowed Hershey to return the children, essentially kick them out, if they violated behavior codes. But there was one feature of Hershey's trust that was not only unique for its time, it's unique even now. The Hershey Trust Company Bank 
owns as a holder, as a fiduciary of the school, the controlling shares in the Hershey Chocolate Company, what, like 10,000 acres of land that Hershey bought out there and also gave to the school. And it owns 100% of Hershey Entertainment, which is one of the biggest amusement parks in the country. In other words, not only did Hershey give his personal fortune to a small orphan school for white boys, he gave his entire chocolate company and his real estate development company to the orphan school. All the future profits from the companies would go to the orphan school. If you want to have control of the world after you die, here's a recipe. You make some money, you write down what you want to do with that money, and you get people to do it after you die. That's it. There's nothing more to it. The dead aren't powerful unless the living comply with their wishes. I'm Ray Madoff. I'm a professor of law at Boston College Law School. Ray Madoff is an expert at how the law helps dead people force the living to comply with their wishes. Her book is Immortality and the Law, The Rising Power of the American Dead. Charitable trusts provide the greatest opportunity for individuals to live on after death. First of all, individuals can set aside their money and they can commit it to a particular purpose, and this trust can carry on forever. Fundamentally, a trust is just a bunch of money and a bunch of wishes, along with a trustee or board who is legally required to execute those wishes. If the trust runs into barriers, like all of a sudden your wishes become illegal, there is a doctrine in the law called see pray. See pray says that the trustees will have to continue to execute your wishes as closely as possible with your original wish consistent with the new laws. For example, current American law says you can't discriminate by race or gender. So by see pray, the Hershey School stopped discriminating against women and minorities in the 70s. As soon as you have minimal compliance with the law, you have to continue carrying out the dead person's wishes. And I'm not just talking about America. The legal right of the dead to have the state carry out their wishes in perpetuity is now law in Canada, the UK, Ireland, and Australia. If you think about it, requiring everyone in the future to carry out your wishes forever is uniquely human and absolutely bizarre. I couldn't imagine monkeys walking around saying, Hey, Mika's dead. What should we do with her bananas? Well, we're hungry, but Mika liked to throw them into the river. I guess we have to do that. But it's even worse in the case of us human beings, particularly Americans. It's as though even the seeds that grow into bananas from Mika's bananas belong to Mika. Well, I guess we have to throw these new bananas into the river too. And if that's not bad enough, it's even worse. It's as though the monkeys look at each other throwing away all these bananas and say, how long are we doing this for? And everyone thinks, forever, I guess, because that's what Mika wanted. There's one caveat, of course. Your wishes have to be considered charitable. 
Today, we tend to be generally quite liberal about what constitutes a charitable trust. So there are charitable trusts for the preserving Huey military aircraft. That is considered uh, charitable. Most things pretty easily pass that test. People can sometimes set up these charitable trusts for very broad purposes, but they can also set them up for very narrow purposes. Narrow purposes, like Milton Hershey. I wanted to see what the school was like, so I took a trip to Hershey, Pennsylvania. I'm Jim McMahon, Director of School History for Milton Hershey School. The school today is very much in sync with what Milton Hershey wanted the school to be when it started in 1909. In the 1920s, they build what's called cottages. They're living with four women in the home who take care of them, and there might be 20 or 30 boys in these homes. And it's been that way ever since. We're still all about taking care of the neediest kids in society. We're still living in family units. They're learning a, a trade or a vocation. We're right in the center of our campus, pretty much. Uh, on this I took a tour of the Milton Hershey School with Jim McMahon. It's in a beautiful, idyllic part of rural Pennsylvania, surrounded by farmlands and lots and lots of chocolate. Uh, that's a student home right behind us. Yeah. Kind of looks like a big, long, extended ranch house. Yeah. And how many kids would be living in there? Um, it'll fluctuate. We use about 12. 12, okay. We have a small art gallery here, and all the art classes are over there, TV studio, music rooms, the barber shops, the, the dental clinic, and you know, all that okay. kind of stuff is over oh, there. So it's like a little town. It's really, <laughs> it's really like a little city. Little yeah. City. yeah. But, but it just struck me, you just parents about 12 in a house that's like being a parent of 12 kids yeah it's a calling you know it's not as a, it's not a job it's it's a calling you know my name is joe burning i'm a graduate of milton hershey class of 73 i was at the school for nine years from 64 to 73 i wanted to get an idea of what the milton hershey school was like during most of its history when it was closest to milton hershey's vision my mother died when i was six years old and my father had a stroke so he was uh, disabled, and it was me and my brother. And my father just simply could not take care of us. I asked Joe about his early memories as a nine-year-old when he just got to the school. They had very, 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 very strict rules on how to live, how to run your home. You know, when you get 16 boys from age 10, 11, to 14. You know, they we, we ranked on each other, we we cut each other up. You know, if, if one kid started to suck up to the house parents, we would call him on it, you know, call him a suck up, suck boy. So just enforcing the rules was a full-time job. And if any kids got out of line, you punished them accordingly. And they were pretty creative with their punishment. Well, if you were a bedwetter, they would make you go wash your sheets by hand and hang them out on the clothesline before you went to school, just to humiliate you, you know, just that nobody's gonna cover for you, nobody's gonna pity you. So Milton's original vision, right, you have to remember what it was. It was, I'm gonna start this orphanage, I'm gonna indenture them on my farms, and I'm gonna teach them a trade. That's the basic model that exists to today. Though they don't indenture them, and though it's not a trade school, the institution still sticks with the provision in the deed that it has to be based in Hershey, even as you climb into 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, now 2,300 kids. Just being 
terribly homesick, just swinging on a swing, crying till I was motion sick. I was, I was homesick and motion sick and just bawling, just like just purging all these emotions, you know. There's been no study that says that this actually benefits kids. In fact, boarding schools, which is what it's modeled after, the high-class boarding schools, that's a flat market. Which people generally are not sending their kids to boarding school anymore because it's not clear that it works. The reason why you have your life made when you go to boarding schools is because you're probably from a rich family and you got a network of people to find jobs to help you through college and all that. The kids who go to Hershey, they don't have that. None of us are smart enough to know what is going to be a good purpose a hundred years from now, 500 years from now. The world changes too much in ways that we can't possibly imagine. One problem with executing deeds in perpetuity is that dead people are products of their own time. They don't change what they want when the world changes. The school is still a pretty good representation of an early 20th century orphanage. Today, however, child development experts tend to think that group home orphanages are not the best way to raise orphaned or poor kids. Hi, I'm Bob Fernandez. I'm a author of The Chocolate Trust and a business reporter with the Philadelphia Inquirer. Bob Fernandez, in his book, documents the history of Hershey's Trust and all of the things that can go wrong when you try to fund 19th century desires with 21st century money. How much money do you think is the right amount, the fair amount, for a society to spend on a single school in rural Pennsylvania of between 1,000 and 2,300 poor kids? Since Milton Hershey's death, 75 years worth of chocolate company money and Hershey Entertainment money has been flowing into the trust for the orphan school. Today, the Hershey Trust Endowment is estimated to be about $12 billion. Coming up, the fight between the two living heirs to Milton Hershey's fortune, the orphans of his school, and the board of trustees over how to spend $12 billion according to Hershey's wishes. Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You're listening to Hi-Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. How much is $12 billion? You can support the entire country of Haiti, all 10 million people, for a year, and significantly increase everyone's standard of living by half with $12 billion. You can treat and prevent malaria on the entire continent of Africa for a year, for $12 billion. The college where I teach, Vassar College, also has about 2,300 students. It has an endowment of $1 billion. When a large amount of money goes to one good purpose, it can't go on to be spent on another good purpose. But in the case of Hershey's Orphan School and any perpetual trust, it's even worse than that. 
the law only requires that a small fraction of the $12 billion be spent on the charitable purpose. The rest gets to just sit there, growing. Typically with a foundation, you're supposed to spend like, sort of a, a basic measure is 5% of your assets. 5% of $12 billion is $600 million. There are 2,000 kids at the Hershey School. So that comes to $300,000 per kid per year. That's a lot of money to spend on one kid. They aren't coming close to spending 5% of $12 billion on kids. They're spending more of like 2 maybe 2% of their assets a year to run that school. I have a tax return for the school trust from 2014. $238 million was spent on the school, a little under 2%, or 120000 per student. How much is $120,000 per child per year? The median household income in Pennsylvania is around 53000 And remember those group homes, which now house about 12 kids, each along with their house parents? If you conceive of each group home of 12 kids as a household of income earners, minus the house parents whose salaries I don't know, the household will be earning $1.4 million per year, which would put them in the top 0.1% of households in America. So the 2%, how are they spending that? They're paying a school president with salary and benefits and perks and expense accounts, three quarters of a million dollars for an orphanage, for a children's home. That sound right? Boston College law professor Ray Madoff. So imagine somebody has $1 million they want to set aside in charity. They only need to spend $50,000 a year. I use the word spend, not distribute it for charitable purpose, because here the law is very lenient, and it lets people use that money for salaries, even to employ their own children, and for administrative expenses. Take a family trip to Belize to decide whether or not to spend their money there. The hell is a children's home have a 22-member communications office for that spends $2.5 million on advertising? $2.5 million on advertising for a children's home. That's Joe Burning again, alum of the Hershey School. Joe was a member of the Orphan's Army, a group of alumni of the Hershey School that formed in the 90s. It serves as a kind of rogue protest and oversight group dedicated to exposing what they think are injustices in the spending of Milton Hershey's money. If they're not spending 300000 per kid, but rather 120000 per kid, and they're self-reporting that they have that extra money, where's it going? There's $150 million left over. That sits in the Hershey Trust Company Bank. Another 150 in the next year. It's up to 300. You know, it's up to foot. That exists without being taxed. That is the main tax benefit of theirs. And that's also the money that should be being spent on the poor kids, but they don't. And so then they have to find a project for it. They spent $75 million of Orphan's Trust money to renovate Hotel Hershey. They started buying up all of these investment properties, amusement parks, hotels. They bought a hotel in Corpus Christi, Texas. They bought lake compounds in New England. They bought the Philadelphia hotels. 2010, $12 million for a failing golf course that happened to be owned by a member of the board. 2016, 
the board paid $4.2 million in lawyer fees for investigating each other for abuses. They found none. One of the sorest points for the orphan army is the Hershey Penn State Medical Center. When I mentioned the medical center, Joe Burning jumped out of his chair and went to a map on his wall. So here, this, this dark area here, that's at 400 acres of medical center. That's the Milton S. Hershey Medical Center. They took one, two, three, four, five Milton Hershey School homes, gave them away to the medical center. Took from the orphans, gave it to Penn State University. In 1963, the board of managers of the school trust gave $50 million to Penn State University. $50 million in 1963 is about $390 million in today's money. It's a lot of money. But if you remember the tax return I told you about, even today, the Hershey Trust could pay for a medical center in two years without even touching the operating revenue for the orphan school. It sounds terrible when you put it this way. The board of managers is stealing money from the orphans. But the orphans are getting $120,000 per year each. Are they being treated unfairly? What if the endowment keeps growing? Are the kids who are chosen for that particular school really entitled to an endless growth of Hershey Company money? So is the goal of your activism to expand the school proportionate with the income well, fund? Well, that's what the deed says. That's exactly what the deed says. That's the exact wording. School shall grow as the income will permit. Right. The deed. The wishes of Milton Hershey set in stone since the first decade of the 20th century. When you have $12 billion, that school should have 5,000 kids in it. And I was thinking that too. What's the problem with just expanding the school to take in as many orphans as it can possibly take? The answer, if the Hershey School wanted to slum it and spend at the rate of Harvard in terms of endowment dollars per student, they would need to have 7,000 kids. As I'm speaking, I'm sitting in a nice office on the campus of Duke University on a fellowship, a gorgeous wealthy school in North Carolina. If Hershey really slummed it and spent like Duke, they would need to house and educate 24,000 kids. So if you were going to heed to the deed, you'd have to keep growing the school until it took over the town of Hershey. Or you could just double, triple, quadruple your spending on each kid until, until what exactly? How much is too much money to spend on an orphan to give them a shot at a good life? 300,000? 500,000? It doesn't seem right. But that's what Milton Hershey wanted, right? I'm Carol Height. I'm the librarian for the Hershey Dairy Township Historical Society. My family's been here almost since the beginning of Deary Township. I spoke to Carol Height of Hershey, Pennsylvania, a woman who knew Milton Hershey. She went over to Hershey's mansion when her family helped take care of Catherine Hershey during the last years of her life. I've talked to a couple of alums who think that, I mean, they're fighting the fight that what Mr. Hershey wanted was the 1909 deed, the profits from the chocolate company should go towards the orphan school. And that's, that, that's certainly not no, the that's case. No, that's never been it. That's never been it? No. Carol thinks 
Hershey was just an all-around good man who wanted his money split among his workers, the town, and the orphan school. Her evidence is pretty good. Hershey actually set up separate trust funds around town for the public schools, for a junior college, and he gave his workers shares in the company rather than cash bonuses. He probably put $50 million into construction into the town of Hershey and made it a nice little metropolis, but who was violating his own deed. And I actually think that that set a pattern. Milton Hershey put all of his businesses and personal assets into the trust in 1918. He died in 1945. For 27 years, Hershey was not the legal owner of his own wealth or his companies. Instead, he was chairman of his charity and the bank that funded his charity. And the charity owned all of his money and companies. That charity, by deed, was supposed to be spending all of its money on the orphans. So, if spending chocolate and Hershey estate money on purposes other than the Hershey school counts as theft because of what's in the deed, then the first person to steal money from the orphans was Milton Hershey himself. So if Milton Hershey didn't want to put all of his money towards an orphan school, why did he construct a deed that seemed to require himself to do it for the rest of his life and for the world to do it forever? I don't think first and foremost he cared about orphans. I think first and foremost he was a businessman. I think he came up with a very clever strategy of protecting his assets and keeping control of his businesses while apparently giving them away. Get that? Apparently giving them away. But not really. Hershey found the most clever way to keep his money and give his money away at the same time. He got great benefits in 1918. That was the first year that you could take a charitable deduction. Law was passed in 1917, partly to finance the cost of World War I. The second reason, he was facing a, a crisis himself around that time because he was trying to secure sugar for his chocolate businesses. He had bought some sugar futures and the value of them had collapsed. At the same time, he was borrowing heavily to build this huge sugar plantation in Cuba. By putting his assets inside the trust, he, he sort of surrounded them with this hard shell of, these aren't my assets, these assets belong to this orphanage and school. If the bank wants to get these assets because I ran into trouble, they aren't going to take them from me, they will have to take them from the trust, take the money from orphans. And I would say the third benefit he got was great publicity, just unbelievable PR, because him and the Hershey Chocolate Company would be associated with orphans and poor kids for the rest of his life, in fact, up through today. He didn't give up anything. He could treat these assets, which he really had given away, as personal assets. He could go to the bank, he could, he could take money from it. So Bob Fernandez's hypothesis, from his book The Chocolate Trust, is that Milton Hershey wasn't expressing his desires at all in his deed. His desire was to shield his assets from taxation and confiscation, while being able to run the business and spend his profits on whatever he wanted, which you've seen were sometimes philanthropic, sometimes real estate development, sometimes personal benefit, and only some of which was the orphan school. Does that kind of spending sound familiar to you? You see, when you're the chairman of that trust today, you're Milton Hershey. The Board of Managers 
is spending money today very similarly to the way that Milton Hershey did. And because Hershey structured the trust in the way he did, these desires of his survive today. And that's another way to influence the world after you die. Create an institution where all the incentives make the actors in the institution do exactly what you wanted. What did Milton Hershey really want to do with his money? There are a lot of theories. One member of the Orphan Army, a lawyer named John Halbleib, has written four volumes on the Hershey Trust, making a case that Hershey literally saw orphans as his adopted children and set up his trust not only for the benefit of his adopted children, but with the intent of having those children take control of the family assets. Other things I've heard was that Hershey intended the orphans to be child laborers, to supply his milk for his chocolate, so that the whole trust is partly set up for cheap labor. But why should Hershey's wishes even matter today? This is a philosophy show, not a legal show. So I wanted us to consider the moral case. Who in fact has a right, a moral right, to determine how those assets are distributed? There's this assumption underlying the law that the Hershey assets are rightfully owned by the wishes of a dead guy. But why should it be that way? It's just bizarre to me, just like Mika's bananas. And charitable foundations are just one way for the dead to control the world of the living. There are a lot of others. Listen to the bonus content for this episode at hifination.org to hear about all of them. One in particular is going to shock you. Legal scholars and economists estimate that the total amount of money tied to the wishes of the dead is around $4 trillion annually. In addition, wealth inequality is increasing. As more wealth is in the hands of fewer, the lives of future people will be controlled even more from the grave. Coming up, the philosophy. What justification can humans possibly give for continuing to honor the wishes of dead people when the living have so much they want to do for themselves? You're listening to High Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. I'm James Stacy Taylor. I'm Associate Professor of Philosophy at the College of New Jersey. Respecting the wishes of the dead isn't just a matter of wealthy people and their money. It's everywhere. Typically, we take persons' own interests or wishes concerning the use of their bodies into account. So if, for example, you don't want your organs removed after death, in many legal jurisdictions, we simply will leave your body intact. James Stacy Taylor is a bioethicist who has spent his career arguing for more organ procurement. Organ procurement is the same issue as the case of Milton Hershey. Why don't we just take the healthy organs from every person who dies, regardless of what they wanted? Why don't we spend Hershey's money on whatever is best, regardless of what he wanted? There has to be a deeper moral commitment we feel. Some kind of feeling that death doesn't end our obligations to a person. 
Hi, I'm Barbara Baum-Levenbrook. I'm a professor of philosophy here at North Carolina State University. It turned out my grandmother had a secret that she cared about greatly, and so she deceived her children and all her relatives about this secret because it mattered most to her, and then she died. In accordance with a lot of thinking that, well, okay, things are fair game, her brother took me aside and said, I just want you to know that, and he spilled the beans. And I started to think about the morality of this because it struck me that it did matter and that it mattered on behalf of my grandmother. Then, being a philosopher, I sat down and thought, oh, do I have any good reason to think that there's something on behalf of her? And I decided, after reflection, that I should honor her sensibilities, even though she couldn't feel this way anymore, that somehow to dismiss it as of no further importance would be a kind of betrayal, and it would also be morally wrong. This is the kind of feeling that forms the basis of the philosophical justification for honoring the wishes of the dead. The most prominent defender of this idea was a philosopher named Joel Feinberg. What Feinberg's discussion focused on was how to explain the harm to those who have passed away already. His methodology in philosophy was to try to preserve our common sense beliefs about things. And he thought that we all firmly hold these beliefs that we owe things to the dead, that the dead can be harmed in various ways, for instance, by spreading malicious lies about people who have died. There's something wrong about that, but how to explain that? My name is Russ Schaefer-Landau. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I'm also its director for the Parr Center of Ethics. Feinberg passed away in 2004. Schaefer-Landau is a former student, colleague, and collaborator. In order to understand what harm amounts to for Feinberg, he analyzed this as setting back people's interests. So if you're going to harm someone, that's, that amounts to thwarting or defeating or in some way damaging their interests. And he, he understood interests as people's having a stake in things. So if you murder someone, you're obviously harming them, and that's because you're thwarting or defeating their most important interest, the one in remaining alive. So how to explain how it is that we might harm the dead. And for Feinberg, that translated into the question of how it is that we can thwart or set back or defeat the interests of the dead. Here's the idea. Barbara baum Levenbook's grandmother had an interest in not having a certain secret revealed. And by revealing it, her brother thwarted that interest. And that harmed her. The puzzle is explaining how it is that someone who's already dead can be harmed. Feinberg also thought that it was possible to harm you in ways that you were unaware of. Here's a classic example. Unbeknownst to you, your spouse is cheating on you, and he never reveals this, and you never come to learn of the infidelity. Feinberg thinks it's just intuitively obvious that you're worse off as a result. You're being made a dupe in some way, and, and promises were broken to you, and, and things are not as they seem. So you're harmed in some way, even though you're unaware of it. Barbara Baum Levenbuch uses a story to argue this point. In the story, there's a character named Jane, 
Jane goes into a reversible coma. She will come out. And people do terrible things to Jane. She's not aware of it, and she never will be, but she's still harmed. And then I change it to an irreversible coma. And this doesn't change the fact that Jane is harmed. And then I just go into the and she's newly dead. You can't draw a principal line at the newly dead there either. The argument goes that being dead is just another way of not being aware of how people are treating you. Like being ignorant, or asleep, or in a coma. I just don't buy it. I think this reasoning trades on our disgust at people who do anything to comatose or dead people. And I really do think there's a difference between doing disgusting things, things that make you a horrible person, and actually harming someone. Here's an example from Waco, Texas, October 16, 2016. Teenagers filmed themselves mutilating an already dead dog. Okay, disgusting, vile, horrible people. Thank goodness it wasn't harmful to the dog. Also, being dead isn't the same as being in a coma. Being dead is a way of not being in the world, period. We don't talk about other things that aren't in the world as though they can be harmed, like Santa Claus or Harry Potter. Feinberg understood this, and so for Feinberg, who you harm is not the currently dead person, it's the person in the past who was alive. I think that the interest-based account of harm is mistaken. I think that the mere fraughting of somebody's interest isn't sufficient to actually harm her. Instead, I think that for me to harm you, I might have to fraught her interest, but that fraughting's actually got to have an effect on you. It's got to make you feel unhappy or physically injure you. Philosophers like James Stacy Taylor don't like thinking of harm as something that can occur without someone feeling the effects of a violation. And future people can't cause pain on past people. But let me offer an alternative that's easier to accept. A lot of us think that you can wrong someone, even if the person is never physically or psychologically affected by the wrong, being cheated on without your knowledge, having someone steal from you or assault you while you're in a coma. You can still think that you can be wronged without ever knowing or feeling any effects. But then the question is, can future people wrong past people? For Feinberg, what a wrong was, was a violation of your rights. I think the same problem comes up when you're talking about future events currently violating your rights. You know, whether those future events, which happen you know, 100 years down the road are harming you right now or violating your rights, it's still very puzzling how that can happen. If you think that future people after your death can wrong you right now, then why not also think that current people right now can wrong you in the past? When I was 16, I really wanted to be a rock star, and that involved really wanting people to watch me sing and play the guitar on stage. I might have even videotaped myself doing this, hoping it'll one day be discovered what kind of a musical genius I was. Now I have an interest that those tapes be destroyed. So if my mom destroys those tapes, is she harming me or helping me? She's thwarting the interests of the 16-year-old me, but satisfying the interests of the 30-something me. 
If I die today, then somebody in the future can harm who? The 30-year-old at the end of his life or the 16-year-old? This brings up another problem with wronging past people. Which past person? If we say, well, the interests of the dead as they were while alive should actually get to count, we've got the question that you just raised, what moment do we actually take those interests into account? Even in the law, this gets tricky. The person at the moment before their death are sometimes deemed incompetent to change their wills. So some previous version of them counts as better suited to determine the interests that future people have to respect. Milton Hershey himself changed a lot of what he wanted from the original deed until his death. People are all over the place with their interests throughout their lives. But once people are dead, we fix their interests forever. Something we would never do about people while they're alive. And finally, even very legitimate interests of the living don't seem wrong to thwart once someone dies. A lot of people, when they're alive, don't want their spouses to have other partners after their death. But we don't think it's a violation or wrong if the spouse starts seeing other people after a death. It has to be because death changes the ability of the spouse to wrong the deceased person. Why is spending money, other than the way the dead person wanted, any different from this? I've been thinking about the wishes of the dead for months now, and I couldn't convince myself that we have an obligation to dead people. So I don't find Joel Feinberg or Barbara Baumlevenbuch's views all that compelling. But maybe I was thinking about it all wrong. I was thinking of myself as the person who was living in the present, and I saw a world that was honoring the wishes of people in the past. But what if I looked at the future after I died? Would I want someone just to discard what I cared about and what I wanted and act as though my life and projects were over and the world had to move on? Well, actually, to be honest, yes. But I completely understand how some people could find that prospect very frightening and depressing. If my father worked long and hard on a book all of his life and I just throw it away, I have done something bad to him. I don't know if you should say I wronged him or harmed him, but I do think there is clearly something you can do to pass people that might be worse than harming or wronging them. I think you can make their lives and projects pointless. And this comes from an interesting fact about human life. The meaningfulness of many of our actions might very well depend on whether future people are around to be affected by them. Isn't it an interesting fact, if it is a fact, that we would lose confidence in the value of things we're now doing in our lives if we thought that there weren't going to be any people in the future? That's the philosopher Samuel Scheffler, who wrote a book called Death and the Afterlife. Scheffler's insight in that book is that a lot of what we do in life, like working to cure cancer or writing novels, get their meaning or value from the fact that human beings as a whole have a future on this earth after our deaths. If they don't exist, then what we're doing now doesn't seem worthwhile. And so in a way, we depend on them. Scheffler's book focuses a lot on how the existence of humanity in the future brings value to many of our activities. All of us know 
that we're going to die. That doesn't stop us from finding meaning in the things we do. It doesn't stop us from finding meaning in things that only benefit the world after our death. But if you knew that shortly after you died, humans would go extinct, then a lot of your activities would seem pointless. But I think there's more to it. We don't just need people to exist in the future. We need future humanity to be affected by our projects. Our projects have to live on in future people for our projects to be meaningful. Milton Hershey died on October 13, 1945. The Detroit Tigers took Game 7 of the World Series from the Chicago Cubs, 9-3. And Perry Como had the number one song in America on that day. Till the end of time Long as stars are in the blue Hershey wasn't that different from the rest of us. His life's work was not just for his personal fulfillment, and not just for the fulfillment of the millions who were living at his time. He wanted to guarantee an American future that was forever affected by him through his perpetual trust. When all of our projects just vanish after our death, discarded by future people, it does make our lives less meaningful. So I at least now understand the practice of honoring the wishes of the dead. I just don't know why we ever have to do it at the cost of the values of the living. If my projects turn into monstrosities in the future, that's got to be just as bad, if not worse, than having my projects disappear, right? This was Hi-Fi Nation. I'm Barry Lamb. Tenderly say that I'm the one you love and live for till the end of time. Go to hifination.org for bonus content from this episode, including all the different ways that the law helps to execute the wishes of the dead, and to get a complete reading list and soundtrack for the episode. Write us a review on iTunes to help spread Hi-Fi Nation to other listeners. This episode of Hi-Fi Nation was produced, written, and edited by Barry Lamb. Production assistance from Sophie Kohler and Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Special thanks to the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and Duke Story Lab. Funding for this episode was made possible by the Eleanor Nims Brink Fund at Vassar College and from the Humanities Writ Large Fellowship at Duke University. Visit us at hifination.org. That's H-I-P-H-I nation.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. <laughs>